Tonight I want to talk about the doctrine of cessationism, which is the doctrine that there's a certain subset of biblical gifts, of gifts of the Spirit, that have ceased, that are no longer active in the church. This did not used to be a controversial point in the church. In fact, this is one of those doctrines that has been predominant and been the norm for the church age uh, for the last few thousand years, with some rare exceptions, and the last hundred years or so has been one of those rare exceptions, which puts uh, me in the awkward situation defending a doctrine that has been um, more or less assumed through much of church history and uh, yet is now attacked. By the way, it is proving a negative here. As you argue cessationism, I'm arguing that there's a certain subset of spiritual gifts that are no longer active. So that's an attempt to prove a negative, which is always difficult. It's always difficult to set out to prove. I mean, can you prove that there's no pink elephants in the world? I mean, what evidence would you use? You'd have to say, I mean, I don't see any, but could you conclusively prove that there are no pink elephants? I mean, not really. And so that's kind of this kind of approach. When I became a Christian, I uh, got saved at 18. And when I graduated college, I went to work at a Calvary Chapel. Uh, if you've seen the Jesus Revolution, uh, that is pretty much an accurate portrayal of what the Calvary Chapel life uh, was like, or at least as it is uh, portrayed often. Calvary chapels have more of an openness towards the spiritual gifts. Um, there is this teaching that tongues, for example, is a gift that is still today. It's a personal prayer language between you and the Lord is what they teach. The gift of healing is for today. And every gift, they would say, is for today. But Calvary has the unique caveat that it, those gifts should not be practiced in the worship service. So they're active spiritual gifts for today, but not for the worship service. They are to be done in an afterglow, so kind of across the hallway uh, and when the worship service is over because you don't want them to distract from the word of God. And that logic in a sense makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if I'm preaching and one of you jumps up and starts shouting in tongues or somebody else says, I have a message from the Lord or somebody else says, oh, there's somebody in here that needs healing that's distracting from the preaching and Calvary and its history recognized that. And so, but wasn't ready to say those gifts aren't active today in their mind, that would go too far. They can be active, just not in the worship service. And so again, you, you recognize that makes sense at a certain level. But once you think about it critically for, I don't know, a year or two, and you guys are gonna short circuit that and just do it for 10 seconds or so, you're gonna see a logical problem with that. If those gifts are real and are of the spirit, then in what sense would something of the spirit compete with God's own word? How would God do two things that cancel each other out or that are rivals or one thing that God does is distracting from another thing that God does. And so this thing that God does needs to be isolated to kept out of this other thing that God's doing. It's, it's logically contradictory. And that's where things started to change for me. Eventually I left Calvary Chapel. This is one of the doctrines that led me uh, out of that. I love Calvary's and I love their preaching of the word and their uh, focus on the Bible and the expository preaching you see in Calvary chapels. And I'm so thankful for them. And, you know, I, I would even encourage somebody to go to a Calvary chapel because of the exposure to the preaching of God's word that they would get there. And yet this is a fundamental distinction I would have from them. And it kind of comes down to what the definition of a spiritual gift even is. And so we want to start there, kind of a big picture tonight. What is a spiritual gift anyway? And here's my definition of a spiritual gift. Uh, it's not unique to me. This is in most theological dictionaries. A spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and is used in any ministry to build or strengthen the church. That's a spiritual gift. So when you come to faith in Christ, the Spirit seals you 
Spirit dwells in you. And what that means by the Spirit dwells in you is that you are hidden in Christ. Your identity is now subsumed in Christ. And God has sent his Spirit to minister to you. God's Holy Spirit works in you by convicting you of sin, by implanting the Word of God in you. When you read the Bible, you can understand it now and you go, you know, apply it. And you might be reading the Bible and feel convicted of a sin that may even not be directly talked about in the passage you're reading. You're reading something about Samuel and Saul and suddenly you get convicted of some other sin somewhere. That's the work of the spirit in your life, taking the word of God and having it search the parts of your heart that, you know, it's not your flesh that's convicting you of sin. It's not the devil that's convicting you of sin. It's the spirit who's working in your life, in your mind, planting the word of God in you and then conforming you to the image of Christ. That's the Spirit's work. Now, one of the ways the Spirit's works in your life is by giving you a desire to serve in the church, which is the body of Christ. So every believer should be part of the body of Christ. Every believer should be a functioning member of a local church. And as a member of a local church, being a member of a local church, is not just a spectator sport. Being a member of a church is not coming and watching. It's just not... Um, FedEx Stadium or wherever the Redskins play or whatever they're even called now. Who knows anymore? But you're not just going to the stadium to watch other people do stuff. As a member of the church, you're the one on the field. You're the one playing. And your participation in what's happening in the church, that is your spiritual act of service. It's spiritual because the church is a spiritual body. These are your brothers and sisters in the Lord around you. And as you gather for worship, you're with your own family in the Lord's house with the Lord's people. That's the spiritual body. And so everything you do to aid the spiritual body is a spiritual gift. There's not a natural explanation for your presence here. You could be mowing your grass or doing extra work or reading Shakespeare or whatever. You can be doing stuff, not in the church. But you set that aside. You drove here. You pulled in here off of Backlick. You're here for, at the evening service. I mean, this is extra spiritual right here. This is the body of Christ. And so your work in the body of Christ, it is spiritual because it's a spiritual body. But it's more than that. It's not just that it's a spiritual body and you're building it up, but it's that you're doing it through the gifting and the agency that the Holy Spirit draws you to. It's any ability that you have empowered by the Holy Spirit and used to build and strengthen the church. This is 1 Corinthians 14, 26, where Paul says all gifts should be used for the edification. That means a fancy word for the building up of the church. A spiritual gift doesn't build you up. That's not a spiritual gift. That's a you gift. That's the old joke about the person who buys themselves gifts for Christmas. Does that even count as a gift? I'm giving it to myself. Well, that's not what the word give means. <laughs> A spiritual gift is not used to build yourself up. That's not edification, nor is it a gift. So in this sense, a gift is what you do to build or strengthen the church. And this is why spiritual gifts only exist until Christ comes. Because when Christ returns to earth, he will be present manifest on the earth as the Lord of the church. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7 says, You are not lacking in any spiritual gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a prophecy of his second coming. The Lord is coming back to earth. And in the meantime, the church is being built. And while the church is being built, we don't lack any spiritual gift. Anything the Lord needs to build his church, he gives. He gives. It's the Lord who builds the church. So what are the spiritual gifts? And there's six different lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. I can only fit four in the slide, so we get four. And the other two are more or less overlaps or this or 
you know, add maybe one or two things that are distinct. But if you were to summarize those lists, here you go. Romans 12, 6, 1 Corinthians 12, 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Ephesians 4, um, 7 through 12. You'll notice, I mean, I'll leave this up here for a second, but you'll notice that there's a lot of overlap. Uh, I wouldn't try to write down all this chart in your notes. I see some of you writing furiously. I think it might be better for you just to look at it and take it in. And you'll recognize there's a lot of overlap in these lists like prophets or prophecy, prophesying is on all the lists. Uh, some of these are service gifts. Some of them are speaking gifts. And in Romans, I mean, Paul basically divides it like that. Or 1 Peter 4.11, uh, there in 1 Peter 4.11, Peter splits it up to whoever speaks and whoever serves. Those are your spiritual gifts. Some of you have gifts of speaking. Some of you have gifts of serving. That's a very broad brush way of describing it, but that's how, how Peter does it. Peter boils it down to two gifts, gifts with your mouth and gifts with your hands, in other words. And, but you can get more detailed than that. And as I look at this list, I, I think you'll have a realization as well that these aren't necessarily distinctive. It's, it's not, you know, a mutually exclusive list or uh, that you have only one of the gifts from the Romans list or another gift from the First Corinthians list. These are broad categories that everybody serves differently. Your gifts might overlap several of these categories or be confined to one of these categories or maybe two of them or maybe be, you look and you, don't, you say, I don't recognize any of these things as uniquely to me where I serve, but my service in the church is in this other category that probably overlaps with some of these. And that's fine. That's the way the spiritual gifts work. They're not meant to be binary. They're not meant to be to the exclusion of others. It's not this or that. It's, you know, the way God made you and put you in the church and uses you in the church, that's your gifting. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7 has one that's repeated in Matthew 19, 11, uh, the, the gift of singleness, that some of you have been given the gift, Paul, or Jesus says in Matthew 19. Uh, that's another way of indicating there's something more going on here, that the person who is devoted to singleness can serve the church in lots of ways, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, the married person can't. And when the apostles hear that, they say, well, why wouldn't everybody stay single? And Jesus says, because it's not given to everybody. The word given there makes it function as a gift. But the single person can do a lot of these things in the life of a church. And these are all spiritual gifts. You also notice, as is on the screen, that the Ephesians list focuses more on offices. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor. The Romans one more on acts, like encouraging, contributing, leadership, mercy. And so I would say you don't just have one of these lists you wouldn't say, you know, I'm, I'm good at administration, but not encouragement, and definitely not giving. So, I, you know, and none of these work to the exclusion of others. Just because something isn't your gift doesn't mean for a lot of these that you don't have to do it. Like giving, for example, some people are exceptionally good at giving. Their heart is drawn to needs and they meet those needs and with joy. And the Lord seems to bless their giving by multiplying the recipients of the gift and storing up treasure in heaven for them. And other people give more in a scattered shot kind of way. But it, doesn't mean like, hey, I'm not good at giving, therefore I don't have to give to the church kind of logic. Or I'm not good at evangelism, that's not my gift, therefore I don't have to evangelize. Now, just because something's your, not your gift doesn't mean you don't do it, but some people are particularly gifted in those areas. I think some can also go too far in isolating certain gifts and saying, I read one book about spiritual gifts that says, if you were good at something before you became a Christian, then that action cannot be your spiritual gift. And the analogy gives like the school teacher, like if you're a really good school teacher and then you get saved, your gift can't be teaching 
because you don't have the Holy Spirit until conversion, is the, is the logic. You don't have the Holy Spirit until conversion. So if you go on teaching in Sunday school, you're doing it in your own flesh, in your own strength, absent the work of the Spirit, is, is the logic. And, uh, yeah, I don't think so. Um, I'm glad some of you laughed at that. Uh, I, I think what it means to be a spiritual gift is not that you just suddenly stumbled upon it at conversion, although with some people that might be the case, but that you're doing it in service of the spiritual body of Christ. That's why it's spiritual. Um, some people do serve in church in the same ways that they were good at exercising their gifts and abilities before they came to Christ. And, or even, the, you know, you have a secular job as a teacher and you serve in the church as a teacher. It's, you know, it's what God made you with a desire to do. And every one of you is different than, than each other. Pastor MacArthur refers to all of us as spiritual snowflakes. I like that phrase. Each one of you has a different combination of gifts. It's not gonna look exactly the same as the person next to you. And that's why God made the church uh, different that way. And basically your spiritual gift boils down to how do you serve in the church? What do you enjoy doing in the church? That's your spiritual gift. What do you like doing in the church? I remember taking a spiritual gift test once. Um, and, you know, it was like, it took 45 minutes and it was a bajillion questions. And it's like, do you, you know, are you a good driver? Do you like driving? Do you like talking to people? Do you like donut holes? And at the end of it, your spiritual gift is the shuttle driver. Um, it's like, we could have saved everybody a lot of time here by just saying, what do you want to do? <laughs> I want to drive the shuttle. You're in. I mean, the spiritual gift test boiled down to what do you want to do in the church? Now, some people need the spiritual gift test because they're like, you know, it's decision paralysis here. They look at all the different, especially at a church like Emmanuel. There's a million ministries here and you look at all of them. I remember the first time Deidre and I looked at the IVC.church website and we're like, and list of ministries. So many ministries. So I could see how somebody could get paralyzed with that and say, I don't know where to serve. In contrast, there's the military families that come in all the time and you know, they show up at a church and they're like, they're gonna choose one and jump in tomorrow and serve that for, they're not even gonna look at the full list. Like the first one that draws their eyes in, they're in for three years, then see you later. And that's, that's great. And so I guess the spiritual gift test might help somebody find what ministry they would fit better in. But the bottom line is serve in the church. Find something you like and that you're good at doing. If you're not a good driver, don't drive the shuttle, by the way. Let me be clear on that one. Basically, the gift test boil down to what do you want to do? And let me put it this way. Your spiritual gift can be seen this way. For, I'll give you two ways. Your spiritual gift can be seen first in what do you enjoy doing at church? How's the Lord using you to help the church? How's the Lord using you to help your church? Do you enjoy it? And when I say enjoy, I would imagine that you enjoy things that you're relatively competent at. So don't go tell Pastor Bill, after the service, like, my spiritual gift is singing. He's like, okay, can you sing the song to me? And it, you know, it sounds like me singing. Then singing is not your spiritual gift. Let me just clear that up right now. It's where you enjoy serving that you're relatively gifted at doing. And then secondly, your spiritual gift will grow as you grow in serving. Paul says this in Romans 12, verse six, that your faith, your gift grows in proportion to your faith. So think about that language, that's Romans 12, 6, by the way, that your gift grows in proportion to your faith. When your faith is small, your gift is small. It doesn't mean your heart is small. You may have the desire to serve the church in lots of ways, but you have little faith. You're an immature believer. 
But as you grow in your faith over the years, your capacity to serve in the church likewise grows. The more mature believer is seen serving in more mature ways. They grow in their service over time. And that makes sense. A mature person is serving in the church. And their service is um, well-established. Now this is true for all of the spiritual gifts present in the church. And if you're wondering how this is an argument for cessationism, we're here right now. This is true for all of the gifts present in the church. But do you notice there is an exception to this? The person who speaks in tongues, Paul says edifies themselves, not the church. The person who says they have the gift of healing, how does that grow in proportion to your faith? How do you just say, like, oh, I'm, the Lord made me good at healing people? Those kind of, the gift, the word of knowledge. The Lord reveals truths to me and that grows with my faith. Well, that's not the way revelation works. Your, your ability to prophesy a future event doesn't grow in proportion to your faith. There's a whole category of gifts that this isn't true of, like tongues, interpretation, Miracles, word of knowledge, healing, apostleship. I put them up on the screen for you. The gift of apostleship, it's described as a spiritual gift in the New Testament. Does that grow in proportion to your faith? These gifts fall into a different category. And they're often called the miraculous gifts. I don't prefer that, that title, the miraculous gifts. That's what a lot of books call them because the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life is, in, regeneration is the, is the miracle. All of us are saved through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. The Spirit made you alive in Christ. You were spiritually blind. The Spirit opened your eyes. You were spiritually dead. The Spirit gave you life. You're spiritually deaf. You can't understand the word of God. The Spirit opens your ears. So every believer has experienced a miracle in that sense. So all spiritual gifts are miraculous, yet these are often referred to as miraculous gifts. I prefer the phrase sign gifts. I call them sign gifts because the Bible refers to them as sign gifts in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll look at that verse in a little bit. But these are gifts that you don't sign up for. These are gifts that you're not necessarily good at and then you become a Christian. Now you can use them in the church. Finally, they're just a different category of gifts. And so to unpack this a little bit, I wanna give you a broader, you know, a broader overview of how different kinds of churches relate to the spiritual gifts. And I give kind of four categories here and there, there's a chiasm here they're funneling towards the middle and the first category here is the over-the-top cessationists and there are those that say that every spiritual gift has ceased there is no spiritual gifts in the church anymore spiritual gifts were only all spiritual gifts help healing giving pastoring uh, evangelism every spiritual gift has ceased with the apostles and there are no more spiritual gifts in the church uh, there are places in our country uh, some of the, the fundamentalist movement has carryover from that where they would teach that there's no spiritual gifts anymore at all. And then at the other end of the extreme is the, what I'm going to call the over-the-top charismatics that teach that all of the gifts are for today and all of the gifts are fully functioning. There are apostles today. There are people in the church with the gift of healing today, with the gift of languages today, uh, you know, demon casting rodeos kind of thing that all of that's for today. Um, so those are the two extremes. No gifts, 
and all gifts fully functioning in the church. In the middle is where you're going to find most evangelical churches. And let me talk about the continuationists first. The continuationists is a very common, common view. It's kind of the Calvary Chapel view. And it's like, you know, all the gifts are around today, but we just don't want them in church. We're not comfortable saying they've ceased. We're just comfortable saying we don't want them. That's kind of the continuationist view. Like, and if you have them, that's good, but please don't do them around church or my kids. Continuationist view. Sometimes called open, but cautious. We're open to these spiritual gifts. We just haven't seen them, and we're not ready to say they're not here. Open, but cautious. And then the cessationist view, which is what I'm advocating for here, is that there is a category of gifts, the sign gifts, the gift of healing, apostleship, languages, um, word of knowledge, those kind of gifts that ceased with the apostles. So I want to give you my argument for cessationism. Why do I believe that cessationism is the biblical view? We'll do some of this tonight. Whatever we don't get tonight, we'll pick up next Lord's Day. First, why I'm a cessationist. And the bottom line reason, the first one is the most important. I'm a cessationist because, firstly, because those sign gifts have ceased. You might say, that sounds like circular reasoning. Uh-huh. But it's true. I say those gifts have ceased because they've ceased. And I'm going to bring my friend, the pink elephant, back on stage. No, he's not here. The reason I can say with a relative degree of confidence that there are no pink elephants is because, lo and behold, there are no pink elephants. That's my evidence. So if somebody were to say, can you prove from the Bible that there are no pink elephants? I would say, well, yes and no. If the Bible describes what an elephant is, in a sense, I can look around the world and say they're not here. It's different than saying the Bible proves they're not here, but show me one. And so I would say that the miraculous gifts, uh, or what are called the miraculous gifts, the sign gifts, like speaking in tongues, like the gift of healing, um, aren't here anymore. They're not around. Now, you might say, yes, but my grandmama is godly, the godliest woman I've ever known. She speaks in tongues every day. We'll pick up on that next week for sure. But for this week, let me just say, what is called speaking in tongues today is not what it was in the Bible age. Speaking in tongues in the Bible age was the gift of languages. It was speaking a known language. The word tongue in the New Testament, uh, glossia, it's just the word for language. When someone speaks in a unknown language, it means that nobody there knows it, but it is a spoken language. And so, you know, you get kind of the charismatic movement jumping into the scene in the United States in the early 1900s with the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles. Everything crazy comes from Los Angeles. It catches on and grows. And, you know, for... For almost a hundred years, the claim was that the kind of charismatic Pentecostal speaking in tongues was a real spoken language from somewhere in the world. But we just don't know what language it was. And what ended that whole charade was the advent of the internet where you can record things and put them into Google Translate or record it in a tape recorder and send it to uh, linguist, uh, linguists who, you know, listen to it. And like, That's not a language. And so now that view has changed more to like, oh, well, now the gift of tongues is a prayer language. Only the angels know it, not us. I mean, that may very well be, but it is not the biblical gift of languages. You see the same thing with prophecy. Prophecy in the New Testament was the ability to declare something that was going to happen. 
And so that's not around today. Nobody can do that today. And so now there's this whole category for fallible prophecy where, yeah, you know, the Bible doesn't say that the gift of prophecy has ceased, but every prophet we see has things they're wrong about. And so we say, yeah, the New Testament has fallible prophecy where people can make a prophecy about something. And if they're wrong, you know, and the gift of prophecy is being right more than wrong. Well, that's not, that's not a spiritual gift and nor is that really remarkable. I mean, that's, you know, that's reading the news. That's thinking about the future. Maybe some people are more discerning than others, and so they can see patterns. They can see where things are going. That's the gift of discernment, what's good and evil and how that will play out. That's wisdom. That's not the gift of prophecy or apostleship. We'll look at that one in a few minutes more in depth. But apostleship, God gave these 12 people that would, would lead the church and be the foundation of the church. And you say, yeah, but now that just means that I'm over a denomination or I have a hundred churches that report to me. That's the gift of apostleship. That's not what apostleship was in the New Testament. Paul wasn't an apostle because a hundred churches reported to him. So it's redefining the words to make them for today. But that's not what they were in the New Testament era. And none of these are more clear than the gift of healing. In the New Testament, the gift of healing was the ability at will to drive illness out of places, to drive illness out of people. It was not contingent upon the person's faith, by the way. It just simply wasn't. It was contingent upon the person with the gift of healing exercising it. But today, if somebody had the gift of healing, they would go to a hospital and heal everybody but they don't. So today it's morphed. Today it's morphed to the faith healers. It's morphed to those that are on TV or on stages who say, send me money and I can send you uh, a rag that will heal you kind of thing. One of these big name televangelists I wrote to him once just to see what happened. And uh, he, he mailed to me a life-size picture of himself with his hands out like this. And I taped it on the side of my refrigerator and I was supposed to go uh, up to it on the wall and put my hands on his hands and my nose and his nose. It's pretty weird. Uh, uh, and I, he could heal me through the poster. He sent me a little handkerchief that had been anointed with his oil. He sent me a dollar bill, and I was supposed to put it on the, uh, the passage about tithing in the Old Testament, and I was supposed to put it back in an envelope and send it back to him with my own gift. Um, I put it in the passage about false prophets. <laughs> Made a dollar on this, the thing and then kept the... Uh, poster up in my refrigerator for a while. My roommates in seminary thought I was officially crazy. <laughs> that's just not the gift of healing. But that's what it's presented as often today. So the first reason I'm a cessationist is because the things that are practiced today are not the biblical gifts. The biblical gifts, those, those sign gifts, just simply aren't around today. Secondly, because the function of those sign gifts was to establish the church. Those gifts functioned in a way in the life of the church to establish the church. And I know you're open to 2 Corinthians 12, many of you, but you can flip left to 1 Corinthians um, 13. We'll look at this just very, very briefly and we'll, we'll keep uh, going here. But 1 Corinthians 13 is coming after 1 Corinthians 12, of course, which is about spiritual gifts and how the body of Christ functions with all the spiritual gifts in it. And that's all of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that could deserve its own message sometime, but 1 Corinthians 12 ends down in verse 27 with the gift of 
uh, with the list of gifts. Notice that one of the gifts on the list there is the apostleship. That's the first gift it says, verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 12, the gift of apostleship. And there's other gifts that would still be carrying on today like uh, helping, administering, etc. But on this list are languages, tongues, various kinds of languages, healing, the gift of miracles. Those are all on the list as well. So it's a list that mixes some of the sign gifts with some of the more uh, permanent gifts in the life of the church. And then you jump to chapter 13 and he talks about the importance of love. And now look at chapter 13, verse 8. Love never ends. Prophecies, they all pass away. The gift of languages, they will cease. And that word cease, it's a middle voice. is going to kind of run out on its own. For knowledge, it too will pass away. Knowledge, it would be a future thing. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the, and the word ESV is perfect, it's the Greek word teleos. Some of you are in the teleos uh, Bible study here at church. Teleos is a word that means mature. Right now, we know so imperfectly. But when maturity comes, the immature will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Notice that Paul's logic here is that some of those gifts, like languages and prophecy and even apostleship, are functioning in the church when the church is immature, when the church is childish. But when he grows up, later on, into maturity, When the church reaches maturity, those things will fade away. They will disappear. You can flip right a few books over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul echoes what he just wrote there. Ephesians chapter, back in 1 Corinthians 13. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes about the whole, the Jesus descending to the grave, then ascending and then going up to heaven and distributing spiritual gifts to the church. This is the first part of, or the middle part of Ephesians chapter four. Um, it says in verse 11 there, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up. There's that word for edification of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the son of God to maturity. Mature man had the same word that's used over in First uh, Corinthians 13 that unfortunately is translated perfection there, but here it's, translated, I think, in, in a better way, a more mature way, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of fullness of Christ. So the church is growing with its gifts. And when that maturity arrives, he says in verse 14, we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, that should echo First Corinthians 13, doesn't it? Speaking the truth in love will grow up into him who is the head, the Christ, the whole body, joined and held together with every joint. That's 1 Corinthians 12, which each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. So here Paul's doing the same kind of logic that God is giving the gifts, specifically the gift of the apostleship here, along with the other gifts, to help the church grow from immaturity to maturity. That's how those sign gifts functioned, to help the church get launched and you see this in the book of Acts when the, when the apostles are going somewhere, they are healing. They are casting out demons. They are raising the dead. Even the dead people who fell asleep with boring preaching, raised back to life. Man, that's so important for the growth of a, an early church. If you died of boredom of the sermons, the church would not grow. <laughs> and so there's even resurrection there. This leads to the third point. That the... The sign gifts, the function of those gifts was to authenticate the apostles. And here we want to go back to 2 Corinthians 12. The function of the sign gifts was to authenticate the apostles. This was to help the church 
grow by authenticating who they were. This is a world without Facebook, which has blessings and cursings to it. One of the drawbacks is that you don't know who the apostles are. Somebody rolls into town and claims he's an apostle. How do you know? Can he heal everybody in the church? Apostle. Is he casting out demons? Apostle. Can he speak in unknown languages? Apostle. Is he preaching the gospel to everybody who's there? No matter what language they speak, that's Acts 2. That's 1 Corinthians 14. That's the mark of an apostle. So here, remember in the context of 2 Corinthians, Paul is being attacked. He's being accused of being a false uh, prophet. He's accused of being weak. He's being accused of all kinds of things, despite all the ministry he did there. Paul should have been revered. He should have been honored. People owed him honor, honor to whom honor is due. That applies to him. And yet the Corinthians aren't honoring him because he's enforcing church discipline. He's disciplining the sexually immoral out of there. He's disciplining the libertines out of the church. He's disciplining people out of the church for their, their immorality. And so the church is turning on him. Paul's in his absence. He's out on a, on a mission trip. And while he's gone, the church is revolting against him and saying, yeah, he's not here now to back up all of his bold proclamations. And these other false teachers are coming in and they're calling themselves apostles. And they're saying, Look, listen, I can speak in tongues too. Andalanda Shandala, Badalanga Soda. And so Paul says, verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 12, I've been a fool. What's he referencing? Well, he's referencing the first 10 verses of the chapter where he says, listen, I went up to heaven, okay? Jesus brought me to heaven. You don't want to play that card too often. And he says, even at the beginning of the chapter, when we read it earlier for a scripture, and he says, I don't even want to tell you this. I wouldn't tell you the Lord brought me to heaven, but the Lord brought a guy to heaven that I know really well. We'll call him Alpay. It's pig Latin. I would never dare speak of him. I see him every day when I look in the mirror, but I wouldn't tell you that. And so he does that. And what does the Lord do to him? Gives him a messenger from the devil to bring him humility and bring him down. And so Paul says, I'm just so foolish. How can Paul promote himself when he has a, a false teacher bringing him down? So he finally says, listen, It's the end of the book. If you want me to defend myself, I give up on you. Look at verse 11. I should have been commended by you. You should have been saying, Paul was, he gave his life for us. We're his children. He he birthed us. We're his bride. You know, he brought us into here. He, He betrothed us. But no. Instead, Paul says, Just so you know, for the record, let the record reflect this, and it's in the word of God, so it's forever. Let the record reflect this. I was not inferior to those super apostles. All those people running around with their fake spiritual gift, Paul says, I was not less than them. You guys fell for it? I cannot believe it. I was not less, even though I am nothing, Paul says, I'm not less than them. That's a pretty sophisticated insult, isn't it? I'm zero, but they're less than me. Where does that put them? And he says, the signs of the true apostle were performed among you with patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And then he says, what were you less than favored in the other churches? Except that I didn't burden you. Paul didn't take their money. So notice in that language there, he's saying that all of the churches that have been planted now were all planted with the signs of an apostle. What were the signs of an apostle? 
Well, first of all, right away, the gift of apostleship. That's one of the signs of an apostle. The gift of apostleship. What is the gift of apostleship? It's the designation of the Lord to be one of his apostles, to go into the world and be a messenger of the gospel. The word apostle just means sent. Think about what the apostles are. And this is very important to understand because it's one of the spiritual gifts. If you can prove that the gift of apostleship has ceased, then you're a cessationist. You've already isolated one spiritual gift that you're saying is not active in the church anymore and was confined to the early church. Just one. And the apostle, apostleship is one of the spiritual gifts. It was on our list earlier and just about all of the lists. The apostles, first of all, were chosen particularly by God. They're chosen before they were born. Jesus prayed for them and then chose them individually, different than all of his other disciples. And this is true of Paul also. Galatians 1 verse 15 Paul says, God set me apart from the womb to be an apostle. From the womb, Paul was designated an apostle. And then he was appointed by Christ. The apostles were all appointed by Christ in the upper room. He breathed on them to receive the spirit. He sent them into the world. And then he finds Paul on the road to Damascus and it gives him a similar experience. That's what an apostle is. All the apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and his resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1. That was the criteria for Matthias, the, the 12th apostle. We got to find somebody who saw Jesus, who was with Jesus, and was an eyewitness to his resurrection. Paul tells the Corinthians the first time he write, writes him in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1 that he too was an eyewitness to the resurrection. That's why he can be an apostle. The apostles received direct revelation from God. God spoke to them, they turned it into scripture. This is the New Testament. Every book in the New Testament written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. Galatians 1, Paul says, I received this from the Lord. He told me these things. That makes him in Galatians 1 an apostle. The apostles were the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2 verse 20. It was a temporary office for a limited amount of time, Ephesians 2 20. They had a very to be the foundation of the church as it grows into maturity, it's, as it's edified, as it's built, it's built on the foundation. The foundation doesn't repeat itself. When you build a four-story building, you don't put a new foundation at the top of every floor. It would collapse. The apostles had the ability to do these miraculous signs and wonders. Hebrews 2 says that way. In previous times, Hebrews 2 says, the gospel was authenticated through signs and wonders and various gifts of the Holy Spirit. Notice that in Hebrews 2, those gifts are already referred to in the past tense as sign gifts. Those gifts happened as signs to authenticate the sincerity of the apostolic ministry. They could cast out demons, for example. Luke 9, verse 1. The apostles could cast out demons. You see that in the book of Acts. When Paul could cast out demons, the, and when other people tried to do it, the demons laughed at them. Remember, and said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. Who are you again? So I want you to see how superficial it is to say this kind of thing happened in the Bible. It should happen today. It's a very superficial logic because a lot of those things happened in the Bible because they were done by apostles to authenticate the apostles. So for you to say, because the apostles cast out demons, so should I, you're misunderstanding what those gifts were for. They were designed to authenticate the apostles who would then use that to write scripture so now you're not authenticating scripture by those signs. Scripture authenticates itself. When, you when 2 Corinthians is not written 
Paul has the gifts to authenticate himself to the Corinthians. Once 2 Corinthians is written, now that authenticates Paul's teaching. Paul's doing miracles in Ephesus to authenticate his ministry until he writes the book of Ephesus. And then he tells them, those gifts were for you were immature. Now apply this book, put on the spiritual armor in chapter six and grow up to be a man. That's what he tells the Galatians. He could do these gifts among them, but he tells the Galatians, you need to, he says, I received the gospel from Jesus Christ personally. If anybody else comes and preaches a different gospel, let them be accursed. Meaning there ain't no more apostles coming. If somebody shows up and says, I'm an apostle here, close the door and run away. By the way, when Peter snuck in and started teaching you something different than me, I opposed him to his face. The church has got to grow up. That's the sign gifts. There's 12 apostles, by the way. I think of Revelation. The 12 pillars, 24 pillars, 12, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. It's not an ever-growing army. They're foundational for the church. That's Revelation 21, 14, where their names are written there. Foundational. You take all that. You say, you know what? Apostleship was a gift for the early church. Now, with apostleship came back in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12 here, the signs of a true apostle. What were they? Signs, wonders, miracles. Same list from Hebrews 2. Mighty works and wonders and miracles. Similar to the list in 1 Corinthians 13, the gift of miracles and languages, the gift of scripture. And you see them running out even inside the New Testament. That'll be our fourth point and we'll end with this one this evening. Fourth, the gifts themselves ceased inside of the New Testament. So the four reasons I'm a cessationist, one, because the gifts aren't active anymore. Those, those sign gifts are not around anymore. And those that say they are doing them are doing artificial counterfeits of them. They're not even matching what's described in the Bible, and so they themselves redefine them. Second, I'm a cessationist because the function inside of the, the New Testament of those gifts was to establish the church by authenticating the apostles, That's the third reason those gifts were designed to identify who the apostles were, give them the miraculous authority to start the church and have it grow. And fourthly, the cessation of those gifts inside of the the New Testament. Even in the New Testament, you're already seeing those gifts fade away. Uh, One of the key verses for this is Hebrews 2. I mentioned it earlier, but I can put it on the screen now. It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. Notice that apostolic language. Paul's saying, I heard this from the Lord. Others who heard it from the Lord testified to it. While God bore witness by, here's the same list again, signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And it's already in the past tense with those, those, those sign gifts, authenticating the apostles. Inside of the New Testament, they're referred to by looking at them in the rearview mirror. That's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews, by the way. The people in Hebrews are saying, I don't know if we still want to follow Jesus or we can apostatize and go our own way. And the author is saying, listen, if you go your own way, there's not a second savior coming. The first savior came. Jesus came, died, resurrected. Better than angels, better than Moses, better than all kinds of stuff. That already happened. And it was authenticated to you by the signs of an apostle. If you abandon that, what's left? Acts 19 says something similar. 
God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and diseases left them and evil spirits went out. That's what the gift of healing was like. That's very different than mailing somebody a dollar bill and a handkerchief and a life-size poster of yourself. Now I know that healing still happens today, but you need to appreciate the difference between the gift of healing and healing. Today, even in the book of James, which is arguably the first New Testament book written already by then, the, the church in the diaspora was established, likely with gifts of healing. But now that it's established, what are you supposed to do with the sick people in that church? You're supposed to bring them to the elders and the elders pray and God heals. Notice how the triangles are reversed. With the gift of healing, God gives the apostle the gift the apostle heals, the apostle is authenticated. That was the function of the gift. When the apostle healed, you know that guy's a legit apostle because he just did that. Very different than even praying for healing. Praying for healing, the sick person comes to the pastor, pastor and elders pray to God. God answers the prayer. God is authenticated, not the pastor or elder. It's just fundamental. The arrows go the different way. God to the person with the gift, to the healing authenticates the person with the gift. Sick person to the church leadership, church leadership prays. God heals, not the elders. That's the difference. So yes, I believe God heals. Yes, you should pray for healing and God answers those prayers and God heals. When God answers those prayers, it doesn't necessarily authenticate the person who prayed. That's the gift of healing. And that ran its own course. And that's what is described here in Acts 19. That happened in the churches founded. Contrast that with 2 Timothy 4, verse 20. 2 Timothy 4, verse 20, Paul says, Trophimus, I left sick in Miletus. That's just like a throwaway verse you think at the end of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is the last letter Paul wrote. You think that's just a little footnote there about what happened to Trophimus. Think about the contrast between Acts 19 and 2 Timothy 4. Acts 19 People look at Paul's handkerchief and get healed. They got healed from sicknesses they didn't even know they had. And yet here's a faithful traveling partner with Paul later on. Paul was writing to Ephesus, by the way. That's the contrast with Acts 19, Ephesus. And then 2 Timothy's written to Ephesus. And he says, I had to leave, my I had to leave Trophimus sick in Miletus. Paul loved Trophimus. I had to leave him sick. It's letting you know that even inside of the New Testament, the gift of healing is running out. Earlier he's raising the dead and now he's leaving traveling companion behind you sick. A reminder, God does still heal. The difference is that God heals as a response to prayer, not as a gift of healing. So what do you do with all this? My conclusion would be, of all this, my conclusion would be find your spiritual gift, serve eagerly in the church, be excited about your role to serve in the church. Don't chase after these other gifts. And when you hear people describing how they speak in tongues or they have the gift of healing or all that, you know, have some sympathy for them. A lot of them, that's just the only kind of Christianity they know. They haven't thought critically about it probably. They've embraced the paradigm that what they're seeing in their own churches is different than what's happening in the New Testament and that's okay to them. But you just take a step back and say, if what I see proclaimed as those gifts, it's just so different than what was in the Bible. What does that mean? And I would say it means that what you see proclaimed as those gifts today are not the true authentic gifts that were given 
like Paul even appeals to in 2 Corinthians 12 as the, the signs of a true apostle. God, we're grateful that you do, of course, still heal. You are the God of miracles. Every one of us can testify to that. You are a supernatural God by your own existence and definition. We're grateful for that. We pray for charity as we engage with others that may disagree with us in this. It's so hard to argue with people's experiences and what they've seen or you know, their friend has told them or whatever. So we're not trying to persuade the world here, Lord. We're just trying to firm up our own faith and we pray that you'd use tonight's message to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And now for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to see you at Emmanuel Bible Church. For more information on our church or our current service times, go to ibc.church. For more information about the Master Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been a blessing to you, and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel with boldness.